I want to begin this morning with a quote uh, from John Stott that I think does a great job of summarizing what I've been trying to be about in this series, Growing Intentionally, Step Forward into Christlikeness. You can see the quote on the screen. John Stott says, You can become a Christian in a moment, but not a mature Christian. Christ can enter, cleanse, and forgive you in a matter of seconds, but it will take much longer for your character to be transformed and molded to his will. It takes only a few minutes for a bride and bridegroom to be married, but in the rough and tumble of their home, it may take many years for two strong wills to be dovetailed into one. Can we say amen to that? So when we receive Christ, a moment of commitment will lead to a lifetime of adjustment. And it really is this lifetime of adjustment that I have been focusing on during this series. I tried to break out in some component parts what it means to enter a process of intentional growth towards Christ-likeness. Let's take a a quick review uh, of the last three weeks that lead us up to where we are today. I said in the first of the series that you need to start with vision. You have to have a picture of where you want to go, and it has to be an attractive picture. And I said that the Christian life is essentially walking alongside Jesus so that his qualities rub off on our life in the form of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, etc. And then the second week, we looked at the condition for growth, which I said was listening. We examined Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed, where he said that there's the good soil that multiplies 30, 60, and 100-fold. And what makes for the good soil? The ability to hear the Word of God and take it in. And I tried to give you some practical handles in that particular sermon of what the listening posts are and pressure points that uh, can bring us into a listening spirit. We'll come back to those actually at the end of the message this morning. And then last week, we looked at the location of growth. What's that place where transformation takes place? And Paul says that it's in the renewing of our minds. Our minds is the location where transformation occurs. Because we don't see with our eyes, we see with our minds. Our minds then are shaped by certain truths or beliefs. For example, if you believe that you are God's beloved child through whom God works everything together for good, then you have one of those beliefs that will allow you to see correctly. This leads to the fourth element in the growth process, our attitude or our commitment that is necessary to approach this whole enterprise of growth. We are to adopt, I would assert, the same kind of commitment that an athlete does in preparation for competition, that a musician does in mastering an instrument, the soldier does in preparing for battle. That's the kind of commitment that we are called to, to live out our Christian life. Let's read about this and the Scripture's text this morning. We pick up uh, two texts today that uh, will outline for us this whole call to commitment and the process of how that happens. We start with Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, and then we'll go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Let's read responsively, as is our custom. In this initial text, we'll start with, I will start with the odd number of verses, you pick up the even, and then we're going to switch it uh, when it comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Ephesians four seventeen. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. 
Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Surely you have heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. And then we go backwards to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. This time I will speak the even number of verses and you uh, share in the odd number of verses. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. Last Sunday, we looked at Paul's metaphor for growth through the lens of transformation in Romans 12, 2, when Paul says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we noted the organic image that Paul used there. Literally, the word transformed is the word metamorphosis, right? This is the same process of of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, and God intends to make us new. But this morning, we're going to shift the metaphor from metamorphosis to makeover. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here in Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, when he says, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and put on a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, take off, put off those old, tattered, soiled garments that represented your former way of life, and put on a new set of clothes that represents your new life in God. My guess is that most of us, at one time or another, have watched one of those makeover shows on television, right? And so somebody comes on complaining that their spouse or live-in person is uh, living this tattered life, and they're wearing these slovenly clothes, and and can't you do something about this? And so that person comes prancing on the stage, looking slovenly, as they were described, Then they're ushered off the stage and given over to somebody to do the makeover. Hair is fixed up. The right attire is put on. They come back on stage and everybody oohs and awes over the transformation that has taken place. We've seen that, right? Well, an Amish boy and his father found themselves one day in a modern shopping mall. They were amazed at everything, but especially at the two shiny silver walls that move apart and slide back together again. And the boy asked his father, what's that? Father, never seeing an elevator before, said he had no idea what that was. While the boy and his father were watching with amazement, an older woman in a wheelchair moved up to the moving walls and pushed the button. The walls opened. She wheeled herself into this small room. The walls closed behind her. The boy and the father watched the numbers go up, and they watched the numbers come back down again. And finally, the walls opened up, 
and a gorgeous young blonde stepped out. And the father, never taking his eyes off the young woman, said quietly to his son, Son, go get your mother. Now that's a makeover. Put off, put on. Take off that former way of life and put on the new life that God intends us to have. In a moment, we're going to look at what is entailed in that makeover process. But first, what's the attitude in which we enter into that whole process? What's the attitude of growth that we need to have in order for a makeover to take place? I'm again indebted to John Ortberg for a very significant distinction. In his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, he says that most of us are trying to be a Christian rather than training to be a Christian. What's the difference between trying and training? Well, trying mentality is simply dabbling at something. You take a shot at it. It's a short-term effort. It comes from the mindset of, well, let's see what this is all about, as if you're collecting experiences. But it's not pursued in depth. Trying is a life of flitting from one thing to another, but never quite landing anywhere. And there's many areas of life where we know that this trying mentality will just not cut it. I don't think any of us would open up a paper on a Sunday morning looking at the sports section. We notice, oh, they're running a marathon today. Uh, let me see how much time I've got. I've got some time today. I think I'll go try running a marathon. Wouldn't do that, would we? <laughs> we know that it takes months of preparation and planning to be able to even prepare for that particular day. And I would submit that the Christian life needs to be approached in the same way that an athlete trains to compete. Practice, discipline, repetition, routine. Michael Jordan regularly made that last second shot at the end of a game. Why? Because he simply tried to do so. Now, we know he was a great athlete. We also know that he worked harder than everyone else. He practiced out of sight of everybody else so that he could make that last second shot. So the Apostle Paul turns to an image of an athlete to describe the training that a disciple needs to exercise. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Now, many commentators believe that Paul wrote this against the backdrop of what is called the Isthmian Games, second only to the games held in Athens. In order to compete in the Isthmian Games, you had to demonstrate that you had been in training for 10 months prior to the games. Otherwise, you were disqualified. And so Paul uses this as an image to say, how much more? If there's an athlete who's willing to work that hard to get a crown that's going to fade and nobody's going to remember who won what last year, how much more should we not be putting the effort into our vocation of becoming like Christ? I want to pause for a moment for you to see a little video clip comes from the 1981 movie Chariots of Fire. It's about Eric Little. Eric Little was the Scottish runner who competed in the 1924 Olympic Games and won a gold medal. He was a devout believer. He later became a missionary in, to China and died in a Japanese internment camp 
1945. Let's hear his message. see a race today, see someone win. Happened to be me. <laughs> but I want you to do more than just watch a race. I want you to take part in it. I want to compare faith to running in a race. It's hard. It requires concentration of will, energy of soul. You experience elation when the winner breaks the tape. Especially if you've got a bet on it. <laughs> but how long does that last? You go home. Maybe your dinner's burnt. Maybe, maybe you haven't got a job. So who am I to say believe, have faith in the face of life's realities? I would like to give you something more permanent, but I can only point the way. I have no formula for winning the race. Everyone runs in her own way, or his own way. Then where does the power come from to see the race to its end? From within. Jesus said, Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. If with all your hearts you truly seek me, you shall ever surely find me. If you commit yourself to the love of Christ, then that is how you run the straight race. It's hard. It takes concentration of will. Eric Little was a very talented athlete. But he had to add talent to hard work in order to achieve Malcolm Gladwell, in his book Outliers, The Story of Success, raises the issue of whether those who achieve significantly simply do it because they're talented or are there other contributing factors. And what he discovered was that there are other elements to lead to success. I mean, the formula is more like talent plus preparation equals achievement. One of the things that uh, Gladwell identifies very interestingly in this book is what he calls the 10,000-hour rule. A group of psychologists had done a study of the Berlin Elite School of Music, and they ended up, after their study, dividing the students into three categories in this school. First category were the stars, those who were going to become concert violinists, most likely. And then the second category is what they called simply the merely good. <laughs> and the third one was those who ended up teaching in public schools. What made the difference? It wasn't talent. They simply ask all the students one question. Since you first picked up the violin, how many hours have you practiced? All the students started roughly at the same age, about the age five. And what they discovered was the sheer number of hours separated the students into these three categories. By the age 20, the future teachers had practiced about 4,000 hours. The merely good had practiced about 8,000 hours. 
But the ones who had the promise of being concert violinists had practiced 10,000 hours. They replicated the study over lots of different disciplines to show this 10,000-hour rule. Their conclusion was this. It seems that it takes the, the brain that long to assimilate all that it needs to achieve true mastery. The world-renowned cellist, Pablo Casals, continued to practice five hours a day, even when he was recognized as the world's greatest cellist. And he was asked the question, why do you continue on like that? And I love his answer. He said, I think I'm getting better. So if it takes this kind of effort to excel in matters of skill of this world, how much more, how much more should we not be committed to be living into the vocation that is ours, the vocation of Christ-likeness. John Ortberg puts it this way, spiritual transformation is not a matter of trying harder, but training wisely. The need for preparation or training does not stop when it comes to learning the art of forgiveness or joy or courage. In other words, it applies to a healthy and vibrant spiritual life just as it does to physical intellectual activity. Learning to think, feel, and act like Jesus is at least as demanding as learning to run a marathon or play the piano. Would you not agree? Yes. Well, what's this practice that we are then to engage in? I think Paul gives us a hint in those phrases, put off and put on. I think he's already indicated the nature of what this makeover is like. Now, I want you to listen again to some phrases out of Ephesians 4 and Listen carefully to what they have in common. What does this amount to? I'll stress a certain word or phrase. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You, however, did not come to know Christ in that way. You were taught with regard to your former way of life. What do those words add up to? I think Paul is talking here about habits. A makeover is about changing habits. Old habits to new habits. And interestingly enough, the word habit comes from the Latin word habitus, which has to do with formal attire. People in religious orders wear habits to designate that they're living a different kind of life, right? So Paul is essentially saying that the practice of Christian living is to continuously make it our daily practice to take off those old habits and put on the new. This is our calling. Now let's look at this under three headings. First of all, remind ourselves that we are habitual creatures. We have ways of thinking, feeling, and acting that have become second nature to us, and therefore they are not even conscious to us. That's the nature of a habit, isn't it? We do something without even thinking about it. I think back to the time I first learned how to drive. For me, it felt like it was overwhelming. All these things I was going to have to learn and keep in mind all at once when you first learn how to drive. You've got to stick that key in the ignition, fasten the seatbelt, move the seat into place, make sure the mirrors are the right way. Yeah, when you're out in traffic, make sure where you are. Oh, don't forget to put the blinker on when you're making a curve. Be aware of the traffic in front and in back. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to get that. My father thought so too. I'm sure I added a few years to his life in his teaching me. He taught me on a stick shift. And we always prayed as we were approaching an intersection, may the light stay green. Especially if it's on a hill. 
And you might remember the first time you, if you use a stick, you've got to let that clutch out with your left foot. You've got to put the gas down just the right amount. Otherwise, the car turns into a bunking bronco going through the intersection. And I turned my car into a bunking bronco on many an occasion in that process. But now, it's all second nature, isn't it? I can slip into the car at midnight, find the ignition with the key, and carry on a conversation about predestination all at the same time. We are creatures of habit. And we learn these habits, but we have some habits that are not God-pleasing and habits that are are God-pleasing. And the whole process here is to continue to take off the old and put on the new. Second thing we need to know in this whole process of change is don't underestimate the grip of old habits. Habits are difficult. The reason for the training paradigm for the Christian life is that it's hard work to change a habit. Paul said to the Ephesians, no longer live as the Gentiles do. And I could hear them saying back to Paul, but that's all we've known. (laughs) This is the life that we've come to have as a part of us. This is the way we were raised. Well, we get raised in a culture that has certain values to it that absorb into our mindset. We are bombarded day in and day out through film, the internet, TV, radio, with a materialistic culture that says you are what you have. That can be absorbed into us and that become a part of our value system. For those of you who are athletes of any stripe, even if you're just a weekend golfer, you know the difficulty of changing a habit, right? I remember the first time I heard the concept of muscle memory, that our muscles learn certain habits of the way of doing things. Oftentimes, not good habits when it comes to golf, right? And so you're out there with your stroke and you're hitting the ball the same way and that slice goes off because you've got a muscle memory. Your muscles have learned a certain thing. And then you go to the golf pro. The golf pro teaches you a new way to do it. You have to retrain your muscles to have a different kind of memory. And does that ever feel awkward? The first time out, the second time out, the 25th time out. Uh, to change a way of doing things. Habits are like gravitational pull. To launch a rocket into space takes a lot of liftoff strength. It takes a lot of effort to change a habit because there's that pull back to the old life that you had. Why are habits so difficult to break? Because they're deeply rooted in our heart and life. They have become a part of us. You ever taken out a tree stump? Spring comes. You got that old tree stump in the backyard. It's time to get rid of that thing. I've got a half hour. I think I'll take care of it. Three hours later, you have uncovered a root system that has sunk deep into the ground. That's a visual image of habits in our life. Don't underestimate the grip of old habits. But thirdly, practice the principle of replacement. By laying out the framework of putting off and putting on, Paul is giving us a very practical step here. To change a habit, you have to replace it with a good habit. Why do most diets fail? You try to eat less. And then the hunger pangs come back with a vengeance. And it's stronger than it ever was before. 
So it's not simply a matter of saying, I'm going to watch less TV. I'm going to be less sarcastic and critical than I used to be. I'm going to stay away from those internet sites that I shouldn't be on. No, you have to replace it with a new habit that fills the space of that old habit in order to see life change take place. Jesus told the story of the man who had seven demons cast out of him. And those demons went to and fro looking for a place to occupy. And since there was not a new center that was back in that man's heart, those demons came back in and occupied him all the more strongly, Jesus says. That's kind of a picture, I think, of a habit. Now, to reinforce the principle, Paul gives us five illustrations in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Put off, put on, and let me give you five ways so you get this principle in your mind, Paul is saying. Put off falsehood, verse 25. Instead, speak truthfully. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, verses 26 and 27, but deal with the issues quickly. For the thief, you should no longer steal, verse 28, but do something useful with your hands. Verse 29, let no wholesome talk, unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but build up one another according to their needs. Get rid of bitterness and rage. In its place, put kindness, compassion, forgiving. Take off the old, put on the new. The process is not complete. A life will not change unless you can identify what needs to be changed and what needs to be put in its place. How do we get in touch with the habits that need to be changed? Well, it goes back to those spiritual practices that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago on the condition of growth. And I tried to identify listening posts, pressure points that put us into that place of listening so that we can be in touch, be self-aware of what's going on in our life. Let's review those here quickly. First of all, place your life up next to the truth of Scripture. Read the Scripture personally and ask God to show you yourself. Develop the discipline of solitude and silence in order to listen deeply. I, I talked there about the prayer of examine and praying backwards, thinking about what has, how has God showed up the previous day. Intertwine your life with trusted Christian friends who will help you live in the truth. We need those confidants in our life who will speak into our lives so that we can understand how we are coming across. Number four, take risks by putting yourself into uncomfortable places. Step out in faith. Are you getting the sense that uh, we're on a lifelong journey here of transformation? <laughs> that there's nothing instantaneous about that? Well, I've got some good news for you. Richard Lovelace put it this way. God will proceed at a rate and follow a course which is ideally suited to the individual, raising successive issues over the years and making a point of the need for growth in one area after another. He seldom shows us all of our need at once. Thank God. We would be overwhelmed at the sight. At Christ Church, we are all about providing the tools and environment where we can grow into becoming disciples of Jesus. Maybe you have seen throughout this series the title of the series, Living Intentionally, Step Forward into Christ-likeness. And I capitalize STEP because it's an acronym for our growth process. Let's cover it here. First step is sight for the journey. That's vision. We have to see where we want to go and where we are. Training for the spirit. Uh, those are the listening posts and pressure points. Equipment for life. We offer equipping center classes and a great bookstore with lots of wonderful resources available. 
partners for the journey. We need to be intertwined with others in small group life as we move on. So let me invite you into a process of growth that goes into much greater detail than you can ever do on a Sunday morning, and that is the third of our Compass classes called Journey With Us, led by this gentleman right over here. For six weeks, we go into the intentional journey and what that's all about. New members have already gone through that process. But it's not just for new members. It's for anyone of us in this congregation who wants to take this growth process seriously. So let me invite you into that class. Next time you see it happens uh, on six-week intervals, and you'll see it coming up again shortly. This leads us back to where we began this whole series this morning. Following Jesus, John Ortberg says, simply means learning from him to arrange my life around activities that enable me to live in the fruit of the Spirit. Spiritual disciplines are to life what practice is to the game. Here's how C.S. Lewis imagined how God intends to invade our lives and to make us new. He says, think of yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild it. At first, he starts doing the little stuff, you know, unstopping the drains, fixing the leaks in the roof. These jobs needed to be done, so you're not surprised at what God is doing in your life. But then God starts knocking about the house in a way that hurts. And you're wondering, what's God up to? And the answer is, he's building a far different house than you ever thought he was going to build. He's throwing up a new wing here, an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be a nice little decent cottage. He's building a palace because God has moved in. Let's pray. Lord, we want to say this morning, we give you the freedom to make us into what you want us to be, what you intend us to be. You've moved in. Throw up that extra floor. Push out that wall. Take us to that closet where the door needs to be open so we can see what's behind it. You've moved in, and we want to have a house that is honorable for you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.